Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, by the end of 2021, East Africa and the Horn of Africa hosted 4.9 million refugees and asylum seekers, 12 million internally displaced people, and nearly 200,000 refugees. As severe drought, conflict, famine, and security concerns continue to afflict the region, these numbers have remained on a steady increase. President Joe Biden's new Africa policy reset shows promise for addressing factors that have led to intra- and extra-regional migration, as the United States signal its commitment to advancing regional stability and security, minimizing the impact of climate change, and reaffirming democracy in the face of authoritarianism and military takeovers across the region. It is crucial that the United States and the international community work with regional bodies, local governments, and civic society organizations to establish resilient systems that will rectify and alleviate the ongoing patterns of human mobility in the Horn. Joining me today on Into Africa to help discuss migration in East Africa and the Horn of Africa is Mohamed Abdiker, Regional Director for East Africa and the Horn of Africa at the International Organization for Migration, IOM. With over 19 years of experience on a range of migration issues in crisis and post-crisis settings, Mohamed led IOM's worldwide response to migration crisis as the Director of Operations and Emergencies at IOM's headquarters in Geneva. He also engaged with regional bodies such as the Africa Union, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development in East Africa, also known as IGAD, and the East Africa Community to support transitional justice, humanitarian action, and recovery. Greetings, Mohammed, and welcome to Into Africa. Thank you for having me. So to start off, what brings you to Washington, D.C.? This started as a personal trip. I was going to Toronto to see my family. My two kids live in Toronto studying in the universities there. And uh, we realized it's a good time to come and have a conversation with the U.S. government on the various dynamic migration issues in Eastern Horn of Africa. But also we got invitation from the Canadian government to go to Ottawa to have the same discussions with them. So you're doing North America. I think what is missing is Mexico. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So on that, what is the status and the state of migration in East Africa and the Horn of Africa from where you stand as the regional director? Thank you, thank you very much. And going back to your um, opening remarks, first I want to say the future is in Africa. The future. The future is in Africa. I want to say that um, not just because of the economic situation that is changing, the promising democratic democratization in the continent. So there are many positive things going on in Africa, which many people don't talk about. But my job always asks me to look at the negative part, which is the negative migration, the forced displacement. So when I talk to you today, it's going to be very much about the negative side. But that does not send the message that everything in Africa is wrong. I think That's good to know. 
there's a lot of positive things going on in Africa as well, which hopefully one day we can talk about that as well. Right now, what we have in Eastern Horn of Africa is about 13.8 million forcibly displaced people. Out of these uh, 10 million are what we call internally displaced people. These are people displaced inside their own countries. Is that in addition to the 13 or part of the 13? It's part of the 13. And then you have about 3 million refugees. So the majority of the people displaced inside Eastern Horn of Africa are IDPs. We call them IDPs in the language we use in the Mm -hmm. the humanitarian system. But for others, it's mostly internally displaced people. And these are mostly caused by conflict. That's the biggest cause of conflict in, in the region. For example, the Ethiopian conflict now in Tigray, which has impact not just large number of people being displaced. You have those in Afar, in Oromia region that have been displaced because of conflict. The same thing in South Sudan, where we've been having either ethnic violence or conflict where a large number of people have been internally displaced as well. The same thing in Somalia, where you have uh, about 2.9 million people who've been displaced inside Somalia. And very recently, and I'll talk about this later on, part of the push factors for migration in the region, about a million more Somalis who have been displaced just by last week because of the drought situation in Somalia. So bring the number of internally displaced people in Somalia to close to 3.9 million people. So if you look at those numbers, they sound scary. When you talk about 13.8 million people, majority of them displaced in their own countries, what are we going to do about that? And that is just on the... And I'll start with the first push factor, which is the, the political instability. So political instability. That's yes. the first push factor, as mm-hmm. we're saying, mm-hmm. of people being displaced in their own country. So Ethiopia, with the instability we had with the conflict in Tigray, that's one. In South Sudan, the conflict itself. In Somalia, not just with the conflict, but also with the extremist group like Al-Shabaab, which has displaced so many people as well. So that is part of the political instability. The second push factors for us that we see in the region is the economic disparity that we see in the region. We've gone through two or three shocks in the region. We had the before COVID response, the number of people under the below poverty line was large. And then the COVID pandemic comes in and we got a larger number of people who went below the poverty line because there were no jobs, no, the industries were closed. The impact was so high. Um, and then right after that, we have the Ukraine war that happened now that has impacted the prices of commodities in, uh, in the Horn of Africa. For example, in Somalia, getting wheat is a big problem. The staple food is mostly pasta that they use all the time. Um, so that's a problem. Fertilizer costs have gone up. Um, the fuel prices in, in Kenya and in the region has also gone up, almost doubled the price because of the Ukraine. So these shocks already exacerbating the forced displacement in the region. And the third push factor that we're having that is causing the whole migration issue is climate change. And we can talk about that for ages because it's, it's, it's a big, hot cake for us in, in the region. We just finished in Kampala a meeting of about 19 governments to come up with a declaration that we call it now the Kampala Declaration on Migration, Environment and Climate Change. And why did we bring all these governments together? And we're talking about ministers of foreign affairs, ministers of interior and ministers of environment to talk about the impact of climate on mobility. And our region is highly impacted. And I'll give you examples. In Burundi, we have the rising waters of Lake Tanganyika, which has displaced hundreds of Burundians. And we are responding there in providing not just assistance and shelter and health and housing for this large number of people. 
But amazingly, and not much discussions happen about this, in, in South Sudan, in a city called Bentu, a whole city has been underwater for seven months. A whole city underwater because of the rising waters on Lake Victoria itself. And we need to respond on that. Um, and then as we talk about flooding in Burundi because of the rising waters of Lake Tanganyika, we talk about the flooding in Bentu, the city in South Sudan. We're talking about millions of people who are food insecure because of drought in the Horn of Africa. Somalia being one of them now with over a million people displaced because of the drought. Uh, but also you have close to 675,000 people impacted in Ethiopia. You have the same number, a number also in Djibouti impacted in northeastern Kenya, also people impacted because of the drought, which is all about the slow onset emergency caused by climate change in the region. So the these push factors are causing a huge mobility of people in trying to, that's why we want to bring the issue, we call the Kampala Declaration, bring all these governments together and say, what can we do? First, to raise the issue of the impact of climate change in our region, but most importantly, how do we bring this topic of mobility and, my, and climate change and migration to the global discussions in Sharm el-Sheikh during the COP27 that's happening in Egypt in November? Because the last 26 COPs, no issue about mobility came up. So we want to make sure that this is a big impact on the people. We can feel it and we can see it. Thank you very much for this. These are some staggering figures, overwhelming data that you shared with us. So my first question really will be following on that. What came out of the Kampala Declaration? Because this is about what we will call local initiative and initiative that are regional so that mm -hmm. The countries that are most affected show initiative to fix this. Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking that question. And, and the reason why we had to bring them together was there was no much discussion on the mobility dimensions of climate change. We can see it, but we're not talking about it. Most of the discussions between the Western countries and the African countries has always been about loss and damage. The African countries say, we didn't cause climate change, you did. We need compensation. You've been talking about the $100 billion that you're supposed to provide, which you have not. I remember the, pl the pledges, the pledges <laughs> that the donor countries have been talking about. The amazing thing about this conference is for the first time, we had two heads of state in the meeting. We, we were there. We had the president of, of Uganda, His Excellency Museveni, Yori Museveni, in the meeting and hosting the meeting and officiating this and speaking about the impact of climate change, not just on the landslides happening in his own country, how to deal with uh, conserving water itself. And then we had President Salva Kiir, who was also there the whole day, talking about how the impact of climate change, the drought and the flooding is impacting South Sudan. And the declaration came up with the way forward. One of them was, can we in that region form what we call a ministerial group who are going to be talking about mobility climate change and migration as a way forward? How do we deal with this to be able to bring to attention of the international community the impact of climate change in the region? That's one key area that we see is important. The second one, the outcome of this conference was how do we bring the topic of mobility, climate change and migration to the global discussion? Because no one is talking about that now. If you look at the negotiations in the UNFC, C discussions, mobility and migration is not mentioned. But if you look in our region, the impact, how many people have been displaced because of climate change and are moving not just within the country, but also outside the country because the animals have died, the cows, the goats, the sheep, even the camels 
are dying simply because there is no pasture for them. How can so, you do this? So in that case, uh, Mohammed, the two things. One is the talking about it. Now the talking about it is important. We hope that will now figure on the agenda of COP27 mm-hmm. in Sharm el Sheikh. Mm-hmm. But then there is the means, mm-hmm. right? Beside the pledges that Western countries promise, which often do not come, mm-hmm. sometimes they do, we hope they do. But the first responsibility, of course, of the populations that you are called to support and help is to their own local government, mm-hmm. the regional, the national government. Have there been effort to put a package at the regional level? to stem this problem. Thank you again for that question. Individual governments pledged and are already doing a lot on the issue of climate change. For example, in Ethiopia, the commitment was to plant a billion trees in Ethiopia, spearheaded by Prime Minister Abiy as one of these trying to not just combat climate change, but ensuring that the water resources have been protected. We had a very good discussion with President Museveni of Uganda in this conference, and he was talking about how can we protect not just the Lake Victoria itself, but how can we protect the, the streams that we're dealing with as well. Um, we're coming to a discussion now with the Somali government, simply because for many years now, 30 years or something like that, Somalia has been in the midst of a humanitarian catastrophe all the time. We're all appealing for humanitarian aid. The question now they're asking is, how long can we continue appealing for food aid? That's what part of my question, because these are recurrent issues exactly. in most parts. Exactly. So how long can we continue talking about food aid? We should be talking about irrigation system. We should be talking about having water sources, even if it's boreholes, even if it's dumps that needs to be created. We need to talk about improved agricultural system that needs to be put in place. Somalia has the means to do that, but they've been depending all these years. I think they spend about two billion dollars a year on food aid and that is just not acceptable and now we with the government of, of Somalia when the presidential envoy for drought was in the meeting is asking the same question saying how can we now move away from this I'll call it band aid response where every year we're putting in our hands out appealing for international aid how can we go back to creating a sustainable future for our own people so that that's on the um you know, climate change effect, agriculture. But then there is the political side. And by political side, this is a catchphrase I'm using, is conflict. Conflict can be driven by natural disaster for sure. But the other conflict is really political, by, for lack of a better word. Did the Kampala meeting, summit, I think we'll call it for now, did it address that side of it? Because climate change just coming on top of many other problems that the region is struggling yeah. with? Probably there are layers of the question you've asked. It has layers for me to be able to answer that. The Kampala Convention was about migration, environment, and climate change. Um, it was not a political meeting to look at political instability in the region. But I can answer your question by saying we've seen climate change being one of the drivers of conflict in the region and how to address that. And a good example is in Somalia, where the European Union is working with IOM on a 10 million euro program on climate and conflict in the region. Why? Simply because you have the agrarian group, the people who plant their own, they have the farmers, and then you have the pastoralists. And now what we're seeing because of climate change and the impact this is having on the animals which are dying, we're having a conflict now between the host communities and the pastoralists. How are we going to deal with this? And that's one of the response plans we're talking to the government. Not just are you going to have a, a group of 
different ethnic groups talking to each other. But how do we ensure conflict doesn't arise because of the meager resources we're having now? More and more people are going to die. More and more animals are going to die. But how do we ensure that conflict doesn't bring much more instability? We're going to deal with this. So you have with the European Union now, we're working on that, which is working really well so far. The same thing in South Sudan. We're already working with the World Bank, close to a $50 million program on um, water management systems. Uh, that's very much on climate change itself and dealing with these issues. But on the bigger political issues, and I, I think that's not something, it's not in our forte to deal with that. That's not in the, the organization I work for. It's not for. in your mandate. It's not in our mandate to deal with that. But we encourage the member states to talk to each other. We encourage the African Union. We encourage IGAD, which is an intergovernmental development organization in the region that also helps in uh, peace negotiations. We'll encourage the East African Committee. We work very closely with all of them, but we don't have the mandate on the political side. Okay. On the support side, you know, the, the Kampala Convention, as you described it, they dealt with climate change dimension. Your organization does not have mandate to deal with the political side of things, although you you feel the pressure of it and the consequences of it. How then will you assess the response of the international community if we go to the next level? The world is a big village. What happens in Somalia does not stay in Somalia. I presume you're headquartered in Nairobi? Yes. So it comes, it follows you all the way to Nairobi. What happens in Ethiopia, in South Sudan, and so on, often ends up in Nairobi anyway, but in other parts of, of that region as well. You work for this world organization as well. so. You kind of straddle both worlds. How do you assess the uh, support that the international community, which is all of us, is giving to the region? I'll give you two focus areas. One is uh, we're already seeing an increased support from the international community. If you talk about climate change only in the region. And the examples I gave is, for example, the World Bank, which is working with IOM in South Sudan for close to $115 million program. Out of that, 50 million is specifically for dealing with our water management and climate issues in South Sudan. So already we can see the reaction, the, the adaptation that we're going to work on with, with, with the World Bank. The same thing with the European Union in Somalia. We're working on a large program on the whole issue of climate and conflict. Now we're going to deal with this. In Burundi, we have a large program also working closely with the European Union. I'm talking about the key donors to these programs. Mm -hmm response to the disaster risk reduction in Burundi, not just the landslides, but also the rising waters of Lake Tanganyika. So we can see an increased support from global donors in this. I mean, Washington now just had a long discussion with State Department this afternoon. And one of the main topics I had with them was, what are you going to do about climate change in my yeah, region? That's what I wanted to ask you. What are you telling the policymakers in the US? How can they meet those countries to help them. We're glad that the U.S. administration came up with a, with a policy paper on migration and climate change. That came up a few months ago. And now they look at how to implement that policy. This is a White House paper. So we're glad they already have a paper, they have mm -hmm. a policy document. The question is, how are you going to implement it? And being here in Washington was very much about raising that and saying, we can't wait any longer. How much more can we have that interaction with you to look at not just the climate migration, but the issue of adaptation. How do we increase what we have in the Western countries is, yes, there's climate change in the Western countries as well. For example, the drought in Europe, as we speak now, right. um, which, is, which is a bigger issue, but they do have resources for adaptation. They're able to adapt to the situation. Countries in my region do not have the money 
and the resources for adaptation. So how can we get that support for this adaptation in the countries themselves? So we can move on with this. And we see more and more donors now coming up on, you have the long-term adaptation issues, but you have clearly the bigger issues about saving lives. For me in our region right now, it's both. It's about saving lives. How can we save the lives of the 18.6 million people are food insecure because of drought induced by climate change in the region? I'm very happy that uh, the U.S. government is the largest donor now on the drought response in the region. Yes, the administrator of the uh, USAID was here yes. a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. and announced that the U.S. was committing $1.3 billion yes. to help stem this, uh, this problem. Exactly, exactly. And in, just to give you an example for Somalia, which we're very grateful for the U.S. government leadership on that. Somalia, we appealed for $1.2 billion, I think, for the drought response, which is going to help millions of people out of that, $860 million came from the U.S. government. So more than three quarters of the appeal came from the U.S. government, not from other donors. And one thing we're discussing with the U.S. government, even this morning, I met with the Bureau for Humanitarian Affairs in the USAID, was how can they nudge other key donors to increase their support in the region? Because the U.S. has a diplomatic might to be able to push others as well. Correct to provide that kind of assistance. To turn the pledges into actual funding, into actual, exactly. to actual food, to actual programs. Exactly. And they've shown leadership because uh, the USAID administrator was in Somalia. She was in Kenya she, a few weeks ago. And she's seen all, everything by herself. And for her to pledge that conference, it's not just a pledge. We got the money. The money's there. And agencies are responding to this already. In that challenge that you've described, which is actually heartbreaking, are the different parts of society experiencing the shock the same way? Men, women, children? Or do you see a differentiation in the way the various parts of the community, mm -hmm. uh, whatever community, whether it's a larger community mm -hmm. or the village unit, yeah. uh, do you see such, uh, such differences? Yeah. Obviously, the most vulnerable suffer the most. The children. If you look at the malnutrition in Somalia, when it reaches IPC5 level, which is a serious level of malnutrition. When you see the yellow, green, and the red, yes. and when it comes to the red one, so it looks like it's really, really bad. And we can see that. In 2011, we had a drought, a serious drought in Somalia in 2011, where 245,000 people died. We were worried that would be worse this time if we don't come together and support a response, a global response in Somalia. And one of the things I'm raising also in Washington, also I'm going to raise in Ottawa, is the whole issue about there's so much attention on the Ukraine conflict that the Horn of Africa is forgotten. And I'm saying you need to ensure that we also have a much more focus on the Horn of Africa. We've seen some leadership on the U.S. side, but a few weeks ago, I was much more worried because it looked like the focus is very much on Ukraine, not is it changing? Are they hearing your voices, your, your call for help? Just by having the USAID administrator in town to look at that, for us, it's a, it's a good change. So she raised the profile. Exactly. Um, by having Anthony Blinken um, also in, in Uganda and other parts of the Af sub-Saharan Africa, it's a good way forward. But more needs to be done. What kind of response are you getting from the AU, the African Union? The African Union, yes. yes. I can't say much for now. <laughs> you, you cannot you, say much you for now. You an honest answer. Okay. Um, not much that I can say right now, but we're having much discussions with them on the climate issues. Okay. We're happy that they're raising the issues on the drought itself. We're working very closely with the regional economic blocks, which are under the African Union on that EGAD, who are working very closely with us on the drought response itself. 
but then you come with the policy side. And one of the areas we're trying to have them also, the AU get engaged, is to raise the advocacy level on the serious situation that we're facing in the Horn of Africa, particularly the drought itself. So we talked about the United States. The response the United States has given has been positive. They're leading the way. We hope that the U.S. will bring its allies, particularly in Europe, to do the same so that pledges can be translated into real funding. Are you engaging European as well, the European Union? If so, to what extent that engagement and advocacy mm-hmm. have, uh, have gone? I was in Brussels less than three months ago, and we met with the European Union leaders on this, and they've increased their support as well, not as much as the U.S., Mm-hmm. And we are trying to talk to them more to increase the, the support in the Horn of Africa. I'm not just on the food security issues, the mobility issues, the malnutrition issues that we're facing, the migration issues we're facing. But we're also asking our partners, particularly key donors like the U.S. government, to not just raise the issue with the European Union, but also with the Gulf countries, because they have the resources. We want them to pick up the phone, call Saudi Arabia, call Qatar, call United Arab Emirates and say, you need help. If you look at proximity geographically, they're much closer to the Horn of Africa. Yeah, I was about to say. And, and uh, if you look at the number of people who are leaving the Horn of Africa, going to the Gulf countries, it's increasing exponentially. We have about 150,000 or more. And the last few weeks, we've seen the numbers increasing, going through from Ethiopia to Djibouti, Somalia, through the Red Sea to Yemen increasing. So they will feel the impact unless they come and start providing support now. What kind of support are they providing to date? To date, um, there might be bilateral agreement between government to government, but we as a humanitarian community of the UN agencies don't see that yet. What about other donors in that part of the world, Japan, which is, of course, very, been very engaged in Africa and many other, on other fronts, economics and others, and then China, which is, is everywhere in Africa. Mm-hmm. Are they involved in that space? China and Japan are two different set of characters, if we can call them that as countries. Mm -hmm. But still, they're both heavyweights when it comes to the African continent. I think I'm very grateful to a lot of the key donors who continue supporting. Japan supports the region a lot. China does a lot of bilateral support to governments in the region. If you look at there's a different way, the U.S. will do both bilateral and through the U.N. agencies like IOM to work on these issues. But we want to tell them they need to do more. I think the U.S. has shown the way forward. And uh, in our discussions in Washington the last few hours today, it's been we want to do more. And the question they've been asking me also is, can you give us the names of those people you want us to pick up the phone and call? Okay. To ask them to do more. And you have done And that. we've given that list and said, these are the countries you need to call and also ask them to support the region. On the case of China, is China playing a role in that space? Within the humanitarian, we call it the humanitarian response yes. plan. I don't think there is, I haven't heard of a pledge to my organization. From China. Or to any other one from China. But I know there's bilateral agreements. China a lot does a lot of bilateral between China and Somalia, for example, China and Ethiopia. That we know happens. But we've seen countries like South Korea, which for IOM, they provided about $10 million two months ago to help in stabilization programming in Ethiopia. So we see some emerging donors who will much come stronger to move on with this. You mentioned a few moments ago, Mohammed, the crisis in Ukraine. Part of the crisis of you in Ukraine is the disruption in wheat export. You mentioned fertilizers you know, or cooking oil and so on. Russia, of course, is the other side of that equation, being also a great exporter. What role is Russia playing in the pledges that you're asking for or the uh, commitment 
in terms of funding, mm -hmm. or maybe in a barter way where they actually bring the food itself. Is there an engagement that you've seen from where you stand from Russia? Not to my knowledge for now, but when we started this podcast, we talked about Africa as a future. Correct. And I'm saying that because the last two months, we've seen a blitzkrieg of leadership from Russia to the US and China in the region. And it's very much each one of them trying to convince the African friends that they are right and the other one is wrong. But what we see is not much from one side and one side providing the system that is required. So hopefully in the next few months and years, we're going to get that kind of support. So the US side is provided quite a bit. The other side has not stepped up to the plate. Not as far as to my, to my knowledge, to, knowledge. And to my organization, the US has stepped up. So it's the US that is stepping up and the ideal here will be for everybody to step up. Exactly. Including the Africans themselves. Including the Africans themselves. Especially on the dimension that you don't have mandates over, which is the political side exactly. and the management of resources and others. On this program, Mohammed, we often mind the gap. We talk about the difference between the perception of a situation. Earlier you mentioned, before you delved into the crisis, you wanted to talk about Africa being the future, mm -hmm. so to speak. But we know you're dealing from where you stand with crisis. Mm -hmm. So where is the gap between the perception that we may have of this crisis, where we are standing now in Washington, D.C., and the reality on the ground? And if you had a magic wand, how will you use it to close that gap? I don't have a magic wand. I wish I had one. I'll have done that a long time ago. But I think the, the one key area is governance, political stability, and things will be going the right direction that we, we're looking at. But when I say Africa is the future, we can talk about all these negative, disastrous consequences of management governance in the continent. But I also see very positive signs of governments coming together and trying to resolve these issues. That's why I'm saying Africa is the future. If I look at my region for the first time, we have a regional ministerial forum on migration, which was chaired by the Kenya government for two years. And all the time the Kenya government puts on the agenda, what can we do to help alleviate the suffering of our people on the mobility dimensions of migration? From labor migration, we have a large number of our citizens going to the Gulf countries, for example. How can we look for other regular pathways for migration rather than the irregular one, smuggling and trafficking? Just the Kampala ministerial declaration, the governments are coming and asking the same questions. What can we do together as governments? First and foremost, we have to, uh, President Museveni was saying in his speech, which was, you might find it online, he was saying, before we start pointing fingers at others, can we point our fingers at ourselves? What are we doing to help ourselves on climate change issues. Then we can talk about loss and damage because right now the bigger issue for most of the developing countries, most in Africa is about you cost the problem. Why are we paying for it? You need to provide this. So it's very much, but what can we do? Are we taking care of our water resources? And out of that conference, the heads of state agreed that we need to have a ministerial forum to bring these issues every few months on the table of our heads of state on how we can deal with these issues themselves. So I see that they're not just sitting on their laurels and waiting for handouts from the international community, they're asking the right questions. How can we move this forward? But you also have a balljoining, I don't know how to spell, say that, you know, in, in um, youth in the continent. The youth board. Who are asking the right questions, mm -hmm. who are pushing forward on saying, why are you doing this? So the more we get them to speak up, we're getting more civil society speaking up. Come to Kenya, the civil society is very strong in raising these issues. And we want to see this going everywhere else. We see that, but also there's this attitude of, we don't want to be neocolonization again. We want to be independent and decide ourselves, but you cannot be independent if we're all interdependent now. We live in a world where we're all depending on each other, but 
how do you deal with corruption issues, accountability issues, governance issues? And these are questions that not just the youth need to ask that, but also our leaders need to ask that, but also the international community to put them on the spot to ask those questions as well. Okay, so the gap is really within political leadership, governance, but also all the good things that Africans themselves are trying to do at the communal level, at the regional level. Mm. But it seems like we still a long way to go. Mohamed Abdiker, thank you for joining us today on Into Africa. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. Thank you.